The 2016 veto session is in the Missouri history books, and who better to break down the proceedings than one of the participants in Wednesday's gathering? State Representative Kathy Conway joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five four, four, three, two, one. one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. As I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is still in Jefferson City for veto session, so I have as my special guest host... Rachel Lippman. And joining us for the first time, I believe you are the state representative for my good friend John Combest, who lives in St. Charles County. Down the street from me. Oh my gosh, we have as our guest... I'm Kathy Conway. I represent the south-central portion of St. Charles County, District 104. I also believe that you used to represent professional wrestler Randy Orton before he decided to sell his house. I did, and I also represented uh, Chris Coster's mother. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's a very interesting combination of personalities right there. There there are so many great people that live in your district. There are, including my husband and son. Obviously, obviously. So I'm really glad that you're on on the show, as I was telling you as we were coming up here, and I, and I mean this with all sincerity, Representative Conway is one of the best users of social media of any legislator. I think that she uses Facebook and Twitter to explain her views on issues more succinctly than anybody else. And I just had to have her on the show. And she's a real person, not a hologram, as I like to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Not bad for a 61-year-old. Not not bad. So tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, um, what you did before you decided to run in 2010. You come from a law enforcement background, if I'm not mistaken. I come from an investigative background. I, I had my degree from Western Illinois University and I got it in law enforcement administration. I never intended to be a cop on the street. I always wanted to be an investigator. I started out uh, right out of college working for the state's attorney's office in Madison County, and that was a pretty hopping place over there. Uh, I left there uh, shortly after I moved to Missouri in about 1984, I think. I went to work for the city of St. Louis Public Defender's Office, so I worked both sides of the criminal Uh, thing going on there in the trial. After that, I started looking and investigating insurance fraud. I did that for a long time. Uh, Then for a little over 12 years, I worked at General Motors investigating workers' compensation fraud. In 2008, when they had the downturn and General Motors was part of that, they let a lot of contractors go, and I was one of those. And they had been asking me to run for the state uh, house, and I was rather reluctant to do it. I laughed. I said, no, that's not what I do. I work on campaigns. I'm never the candidate. Mm-hmm. But once I was laid off and had some free time, I told my husband, I would like to do this. I don't want to look down the road and say, gee, I wish I had a." And from reading either your social media posts or your son's social media posts, is your husband a police officer or a former police officer? He retired about a year and a half ago after 39 years. Okay. So law enforcement seems to be not only a big part of your your, your personal and professional life, but it's also part of kind of your legislative service as well, because you are the chairwoman of an appropriations committee dealing with corrections and public safety. If I, if, is that correct? That is correct. I am. Uh, two years. I served as a vice chair of the same committee for two years prior. 
So we're coming off of a veto session and where one of the main focuses was a gun bill that a lot of people with law enforcement backgrounds did not like. It makes it easier for people to get concealed weapons. Just wanted to kind of get your take maybe from what you'd heard from your husband or from your investigative background. What did you think about it and what do you think the fallout's going to be of, of Senate Bill 656? You're going right to the heart, aren't you? I am going we're, right we're to the heart. We're just deciding to go right to, right to veto <laughs> session. but can... That's fine. You know, it was tough. It was tough because you have to balance personal. I don't represent just Kathy Conway. I represent my district first and the state as a whole. So things like this are never easy decisions. And to be able to set aside your personal feelings on certain issues takes a lot of work. Personally, I think this bill needed more work. I think it probably should have been broken into four separate bills. Uh, there were parts of it that were pretty good. I'm fine with the, the stand your ground and, and the castle doctrine. Um, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm good with the lifetime membership. I think we needed to examine the permit and the training a little bit more in depth. I, I don't think it's going to be the catastrophe that a lot of people think it might be. Uh, Ten other states have already done it. Uh, we haven't heard of too much fallout from that. So I think it's one of those things where you hope you did the right thing because that's what I always want to do and just have to see how this plays out. It's still 30 days before it takes effect. So we'll just have to wait and see. And, and one of the things that sort of surprised me about this, and, and I guess this sort of goes to the, the general atmosphere kind of, you know, whatever other topics we're looking at, is that you had so many law enforcement groups coming out against this. And this is, you know, usually a, a body where, you know, the Republicans say you know, they paint themselves as the party of being pro-law enforcement. And that was just sort of an interesting dichotomy to me that you had law enforcement groups saying this is a really, really, really bad idea from our perspective. Why do you think that wasn't as effective as, as a lobbying for this bill this time? I thought the, I think they got a late start. Um, I don't think that they had the time. Uh, I'm sure the NRA had been working with both the sponsor in the Senate and the sponsor in the House to try and get the wording right. This bill that we overrode was actually passed the last day of session as it came back from the Senate. Any of you that have spent any time up there in the last couple days know it's a pretty hectic thing. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Trying to grab all the information and make sure you're understanding it, I mean, can, can be very daunting. And I voted yes. I voted yes on it then. I came home and read it, and I had a few questions. I, I was a little uncertain. One of the things that's been pointed out is that a lot of this is still under federal venue. Now, a lot of it's after-the-fact federal venue. But federal prosecutors will still maybe pick up where our state law may be lacking, and they can go forward with prosecutions. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it's the kind of bill that will probably be tweaked. I mean, when has a legislature ever left anything alone? We've yeah. always got the better mousetrap, you know. So <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be tweaked as it goes along. There was such an outpouring of support for this bill from my district. It was unbelievable. And do you think that the NRA had something to do with it? When they get involved in something, it's not just that they're putting stuff on TV. They're telling their thousands of thousands of members that they want their legislators to override this. We had Senator Paul Wieland on, I think about two or three weeks ago, 
he told us it was 60 to 70 to 1 for this bill. And I have to imagine the NRA had something to do with it. What's your, your take on that? I'm not an NRA member, uh, so I don't get their literature. But I, I'm sure it is. I mean, they're a very powerful lobby. Uh, there's a lot of very powerful lobbies out there. They do represent their membership. I, you know, the thing I like to say is the NRA is very focused on what they're doing, as they should be. They're paid to do it. It's their interest. I have to look at the bigger picture. I can't just pull out their interests and say this is what it's going to be. So you try and, and look more globally, I guess, mm-hmm. than just the one interest. But I think they, I, I'm sure, because a lot of the uh, letters that I got were form letters. Right. So obviously it was like push this button to let your legislator know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's okay. That's what they're paying their dues for. And, and this is why that, that question interests me, especially when we're talking about the gubernatorial race. You know, obviously, Attorney General Chris Coster got the NRA endorsement, but it's not like Eric Greitens is for gun control or for restrictions on gun guns. It's, it's probably, they probably have very similar views on that issue, right? They probably do, but Chris Coster has a voting record. A voting record. And so there's no question how he would more than likely come down. I think you're absolutely right. I think Eric Greitens is pro-Second Amendment, too. But what are you hanging that on other than his yeah. word? The, this is the reason I mentioned that. And I think it, it involves policy more than politics, because I just saw an ad today about how Jason Kander mm-hmm. supports background checks. And you're, they're castigating Senator Blunt for being close to the NRA, even though Coster is also close to the NRA. But the policy that he's advocating, background checks, has no chance of, of being implemented in Missouri after 2017, even if the Democrats take over the legislature, because neither gubernatorial nominees supports restricting firearms. So it seems like what happened yesterday— Any yes- further than they already are. Or any further than they already are. So it seems like what happened yesterday could happen numerous more times in the future, regardless of what happens in the gubernatorial race. That's my perspective— What's kind of your thought on I that? I think you're probably right about that. Yeah. You know, term limits have done things like that to the state. When you have legislators that can serve eight or 16 years, some even shorter if they don't come back, you're losing your farm team. You know, uh, you're, you're not grooming people to ra- rise higher up. And so there's no institutional recollection. So you try something maybe when I was a freshman – in two more years, my class is gone. One of the biggest classes that ever came in, I think it was like 57 mm-hmm. or 59. All of that is gone of what happened our freshman year. So those new freshmen are going to try the same old thing. So, I, yeah, I think we're always going to be picking at what's going on. So let's let's switch gears in the veto session to photo identification. Mm-hmm. While I did hear some rumblings that there was some Republican, not dissension, but concern about the gun bill, uh, implementing a photo ID requirement for voting has been a GOP priority for over a decade. It and, sure has. And my thought was there was no way they were going to end veto session not passing this bill. And it turned out that was the case. Yes. What, what, what do you think What do you think got this to the finish line where other iterations had failed over the years? Um, I think that there, there was finally the type of voter ID that really would seek to include everyone that should be included to have an ID. There's a lot of provisional voting. There's a lot of free IDs for people. Um, a, a lot of just things that there, there probably were objections to. I mean, this passed 115 to 41. 
So there was some bipartisan, you know, there, there might have been crossover. I'm there not were, there sure. was one. There Keith was one. English voted for it. Well, and we don't know where Keith belongs, do we? He, he, he's kind of in a nebulous uh, political sector because he is an independent, he but he, he votes with the Democrats, I would imagine, more than the Republicans because he was a Democrat. But maybe not. I don't nah, know. Not necessarily. I yeah. mean, I, I've seen Keith vote with, I think labor's probably the biggest labor, issue yes. that, mm-hmm. that he separated with them on. I'm I'm curious with the the photo ID. There's obviously been this redo zombie, whatever you want to call it, House primary in the St. Louis area, where there's been accusations of absentee ballot fraud. Jason's pointed out a number of times, and as have supporters of the challenger Bruce Franks, that photo ID has nothing to do with absentee ballot restrictions. But did you get the sense that? These allegations coming out of St. Louis that there were problems with this election maybe sort of firmed up views. Was there it kind of mentioned at all in in the hallways or, you know, in the in the corridors of, well, you know, you even have Democrats saying that there could be a problem here? It was talked about, but not in the context of voter ID. Uh, I would say that because of the way the absentee ballots were handled, you have to have it notarized. To have anything notarized, you've got to show them a, a valid government-issued photo ID. So it was already in place for absentee ballots. Mm-hmm. This, this wouldn't have affected that at all. And again, they, uh, the judge did not find any wrongdoing in the Hubbard camp. It was, uh, I think he laid all the blame at the election authority mm-hmm. for, for not handling the ballots correctly. Mm-hmm. So really, no. Uh, surprisingly enough, it never came up. Uh, I don't recall it being brought up in floor debate either. I would say that the biggest obstacle for the photo ID bill was not in the House, but in the Senate, where like the gun bill, the Senate issued a previous question against it. For, for our listeners, it's not really that rare for a previous question to occur in the House. In fact, it's actually pretty common in the Senate, for almost six or seven years, it was seen as a maneuver you did not use in the Senate if you wanted to keep harmony between the Republicans and Democrats. And for those who are not completely in on it, previous question is basically saying, stop debate, we're moving on to voting. It's yeah. We're going to the previous question, which has been asked, which is, should this bill be passed? So they've used it on several bills over the last few years. What do you think that's going to mean for the legislative process that the Senate is a little bit more willing to use the previous question? I'm I'm sure that there's been times in, that the Republicans in the House have been anxious about bills not making it through the morass of the Senate. Does this make you happier as a House member or not really? You know, I'm not sure. The House and Senate are so different. The House is the raucous um tell it like it is, down and dirty kind of place, and the Senate's like the adults. And I know my colleagues are going to be upset with me over that, but (laughs) I think they like that real give and take that we have in the House and the ability to speak for 15 minutes and to inquire and go back and forth. The Senate does that too, but it's supposed to be I don't even know the right word. I don't want to use regal because that doesn't sound quite right. I don't really want to use um, decorum because that doesn't sound good for us either. But I don't know how it's going to affect it going forward. I think it's the kind of thing that should be only used when it's really an important state issue. So I think the ones that you mentioned, the voter ID, there was no doubt that the state wants voter ID. The gun bill, that was an important issue to the Senate. I think it's up to the Speaker Pro Temp in the Senate. What is his priority? 
and how does he want to wield his power? And how much of it, though, is sort of a, a commentary on, you know, Democrats feeling because they're in the super minority in both chambers that, you know, this is the only way we have to weigh in. We're not being allowed to to weigh in on bills and to really cooperate or have any kind of compromise because they don't need it. They don't need the Democrats to get their bills passed 99 percent of the time. Do you think it would change if there was allowed to be some conversation and give and take, even though they don't need to have give and take from the Democrats. They can basically do whatever they want with the numbers they have, the Republicans. Well, you know, you have to look at it like this. Every district represents approximately the same number of people. So every Democrat sitting in either the House or the Senate represents the same amount of people that I do or the senators from St. Charles County do. Those people have a right to have their voice heard. And if their voice needs to be heard for an hour or two in the Senate, it should be. We have 15 minutes. You know it going in. You're going to get 15 minutes. That's it. But I think it's important that senators, it's a smaller group. Uh, We can tag team. You know, if I forget to say something, I can turn around to one of my colleagues and say, oh, you need to make this point on that bill that I forgot. Senators don't have all that luxury. Yeah, they're they're basically, it's a one man is an island sort of thing. Right, exactly. Um, Yes, Republicans are probably going to get their way in the end. I think now that that uh, roadblock of PQs have been crossed over in the Senate, I think we probably will. And it depends upon how many seats are picked up in each party this coming election. We'll get to that in a minute. But I know that those weren't the only two bills that were up for veto override. I just wanted to ask, what do you think were some some lesser profile bills than the ones we've talked about that you, you think were pretty important? And were there any bills you decided not to override as well? Me personally or the House? You personally. There was one bill, and um, it was for ag disaster. And right now, if uh, farmers, ranchers, if there's drought, if there's flood, tornadoes, different disasters that strike them, there are federal grants and funds that they can get, much like FEMA for people in urban or suburban areas. Um, I I voted against that. I was one of just a very few Republicans that did, and my reasons were strictly fiscal. This had an $18 million fiscal note right off the bat because it was retroactive mm-hmm. for two years. If every farmer rancher that was uh, that could get this relief filed for it, it would be $18 million. So could it be less? It could. Yeah. We had a governor withhold, um, what was it, 170 or $220 million um, out of our budget this year. We agreed with him that we did not have the funds, but yet we passed a bill where we're going to be on the hook for up to $18 million going forward. And I didn't feel that was the right thing to do at this time. So what were some of the bills that you voted to override that you, you think were particularly noteworthy besides the two we talked about and besides that one? Well, I think, let me see. We did, oh, I think this was an important one. It was uh, sponsored by Representative Robert Vescovo from Jefferson County, and it was on administrative leave. And it now requires that if a state employee is placed on an administrative leave, that they get a hearing within 60 days and receive a written explanation of the reason for being placed on administrative leave within seven days. So it ensures a quicker process so we don't have people sitting on admin leave for six months, a year, 
being paid, not knowing their future, uh, and it's taxpayer dollars. So, was, was that inspired by the situation with the school district in, in Jefferson County? You know, County? I think it was. Yeah. I, I do remember during regular session that that was something that he was talking about. But that aside, that's just fair to everybody. It's fair to the employee to have that hearing as quickly as possible. If they're going to lose their job, they need to move on with their life. If they're going to be reinstated, they need to repair their reputation and, and move forward in their career. Um, it's fair to the taxpayers, so we're not paying someone to not be there. there. Were there any bills that they didn't decide to bring up for an override? I think I oh, saw a couple. Gosh. I think I saw there was a couple dealing with, I guess, expert witnesses and also changes to how injury lawsuits are done, which, again, are not super high-profile issues, but are obviously very important to people within the legal sector. They yeah. Do you have any sense on why those weren't overridden? Was there just not enough votes in the House? I or? think there probably wasn't enough votes. I was not going to support either bill. Yeah. Um, they were important. Um, I think there's better ways to do it, though. I think that when someone's injured, if a good example, my father, when he retired, he was able to continue his health insurance, but it had a million-dollar lifetime cap. So every time he needed to use it, he was drawing down on that. So if he was a victim of an accident that someone else was responsible for, his insurance company pays 30000 He had 3000 out of pocket. He's only going to get the 30000 where he's going to have to replace this other money at some point that was drawn down on. Mm-hmm. So he was actually damaged more than the 3000 So I thought there could be a lot of instances where people could not truly be made whole. As far as the expert witness goes, I know that all this bill was supposed to do was follow the federal guidelines. However, I'm a great believer that everyone should have every access to the court system and that maybe a jury or a judge should be deciding who the experts were. I want to ask a more global question that Joe and I talked about in the last podcast. I, I... I know that it's hard to predict what the future is going to be. We don't know what the composition of the legislature is going to be in two, four, six, eight years. But I do know that we have not seen a governor overridden more than Jay Nixon has been. In fact, you handed me a CD by your colleague Kirk Matthews about with a song about how much Jay Nixon has been overridden throughout his gubernatorial tenure. And it, it made me think, whether or not this veto session may be an end of the era, regardless of whether Chris Coster or Eric Greitens wins. Obviously, if Eric Greitens wins, I'm sure there's going to be disagreements between the legislature and executive branch, but there's probably going to be fewer because he's a Republican, Republican legislature. And even with Chris Coster, I I know there's going to be major disagreements on on policy, (laughs) but I'm wondering, since he has a reputation for trying to fix complex legislative problems going back to his Senate days, whether maybe instead of vetoing a lot of bills, he may try to work out differences on the front end, so to speak. What's kind of your 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 thought on that, knowing that it's impossible to predict the future, obviously? Right. But, Jason, you're exactly right. Um, I've been up there six years. I've seen the governor in the Capitol, okay, six state-of-the-state addresses and a couple of times in the elevator. Other than that, I haven't seen him. Um, I'm chair of an appropriations committee. I spend three-quarters of a billion dollars. He has never, other than his recommendations, told me what was truly important to him, what he'd like to see changed, how policy may affect my budget or anything else. He has refused to work with the legislature. So many problems could be avoided if he would have come to us on voter ID and said, well, you know, I'll never totally agree with you on voter ID, but I can live with this. Or can you compromise this much for me? 
Didn't happen. So we wasted a lot of time and a lot of effort. We have to pass a bill, let it go to his desk, wait the legislative days to see what he's going to do, and then try and fix it or accept what he's done. Is that just his nature? Is that just he's been in the executive branch for so long? And do you think it'll be different with either of the two gubernatorial candidates? Like, why why did Jane Nixon not want to go from the governor's mansion to the Capitol or from wherever he was? Well, I would hope that he had been in his office on the second floor. I, but I don't know that. I think he was. I don't know why he was. I mean, that's Daniel in the lion's den to a, a large extent, but the relationship never had to be that way, and I think that's what bothers me the most. He was the executive. He should have been coming to the legislature and asking for opportunities to meet with us, to talk with us. I do think it'll be different. I'm hoping it'll be different with either ones. They're both uh, very personable young men, and uh, I think they both understand what the state's hungry for, and they're hungry for leadership. And I think either one of them are willing to step in to that fray. Now, I want to move to politics a little bit, and I want to talk about kind of the politics of St. Charles County. Um, I spent a good deal amount, I don't want to say a good deal amount, but I spent at least two days around eastern St. Charles County this summer talking with the candidates for uh, the 23rd district seat. Bill Igel and Zare, and I also talked with Mike Carter on the phone. That was a huge race for organized labor. Wasn't that something? It was. It was. It was a race that got the attention of Richard Trumka, who's the head of the AFL-CIO. And obviously, the outcome was that Bill Igel won. He's running against a Democrat, but it's a Republican-leaning district. We'll have to see how things go. You, I think you supported Anzir in that race because I, I think you you are against right to work. You you tend to vote, I guess, more closely with labor on those issues. And I read an article from the Missouri Times about how Eigel seems to be, you know, consolidating ranks within the St. Charles Republicans. I'm just wondering if that's actually true, given how hard fought of a race that is, and given how there's so many issue differences between a lot of people who supported Zare and a lot of people who supported Eigel on, on labor, for example. What's kind of your the lay of the land based off that race? I think that uh, we moved to St. Charles County 18, 19 years ago from Overland. And that whole area of Florissant, Hazelwood, uh, Bridgeton, Overland, people started moving to the eastern side of St. Charles County as new houses were built. Uh, my husband and I were able to buy twice as much house for the same money that we could have gotten in Webster or Maryland, you know, some of the other areas. So we went over there. And, and we're like a lot of people. We're conservative, particularly fiscally conservative. But so many of them came from McDonnell Douglas, the Boeing, the Anheuser-Busch. They come from a labor background. When the right to work uh, vote happened last year, I listened to my constituents, and I, I did as they asked me. I I did not really come down personally on either side. I've had people come up to me and say, you know what, I'm pro-gun, I'm pro-life, I'm smaller government, I'm less taxes, but I could never vote for Republican because I'm in a union, and they would take my job away. They honestly thought we would take their job away. And they said, now I can. And, you know, that affected me quite a bit. Uh, I thought, gee, I can be the voice of these people, but it's not a great big labor thing. But that's where I think a lot of the constituency for that district came from. 
But then we have, I mean, St. Charles has been a bastion of conservatism for a long time. The name right to work, who isn't in favor of the right to work? Right. And just for our listeners, right to work is shorthand used by proponents to describe a policy that would no longer make paying dues to a labor union a condition of employment when that entity or business has agreed to organize. Sounds like you've covered this a few times. (laughs) I I get that wrong a lot, which is why we use the term right to work, but I know that opponents of it like to call it right to work for less, and describing it can take almost 10 or 15 seconds. But it's important that we use the actual policy, not just shorthand, but continue. You're, You're absolutely right. Uh, I do know that after the election, uh, I had spoken with uh, Mr. Eigel before, and uh, quite a few times, two or three times before, he reached out and he wanted to know if we could meet for coffee and talk, and I did. And of course, we agree on an awful lot of issues. Ann Zayer was one of the first people to sort of mentor me when I thought about running. She and I hit it off. We're very similar people, and uh, she helped me a great deal. And I I always believed in Anne's sincerity and her uh, compassion and her policy ability. So I I didn't hesitate in supporting her. I think he's trying very hard to learn to figure out how he can bring people together because he's got about, what, three or four reps that are going to be coming to him, and he's going to need, too, to, oh, to yeah. do things on the other side of the house. Yeah. I, I just also wonder, because maybe we, we transition this into more statewide politics, I was kind of watching how organized labor was reacting in that race and other races, and they ran like this one ad, for example, on behalf of Zara and attacking Eigel that attacked Eigel for whatever reason, and then said that Ann Zara was great on economic development and pro-life or anti-abortion. They never mentioned once that she was pro-organized labor, which I thought was a little strange given that the PAC that was running the ad was funded entirely by labor unions. And I just wonder, because I've seen situations before in legislative politics where people are very direct about what they believe in, whether it be Jill Shoup against Jay Ashcroft or Scott Sifton against Jim Lemke, and it was very successful. And I just wonder if maybe that's an example, not only in that particular race, but just in any race that you just need to be upfront with what you believe in and not kind of use subterfuge like oh, that. Oh, I agree with yeah, you. Yeah. This is the interesting thing about this last primary yeah. season. Yeah. We had re- Republicans that voted against right to work that drew primaries. Yeah. And when the ads were run against the, the incumbent, they mentioned um, things about, oh, they didn't vote for this. Right to work was not an issue that was brought up. So that was probably in like the Sheila Salon race or the Nick King race, for example, in Kansas City or you something like that. You are absolutely right. So continue. And I, I know that with uh, Representative Solon's race in Kansas City, and I'm sure it was the same with Representative King, there were certain untruths that were told. Uh, she was called uh, that she wasn't pro-life, that she wasn't pro-gun. And I mean, that's just simply not true. So I think... You know, we had the one billionaire businessman from Joplin who decided that he needed his legislators in place. And I remember when we did Right to Work before, all summer long, I was dancing around on TV holding bags of money that I was bought and paid for. I saw the at least the newspaper ads. I think that you might have 
there might have been a time where people thought you were going to get primary too. You did not get primary. I did not get primary, which, which I'm sure you were incredibly disappointed about. <laughs> but but let's talk about it more globally, though. So when someone when, when you have a gubernatorial race where you have Chris Coster, who is very much against right to work, running against Eric Greitens, who is very much for it. I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of different things going on. They're going to be talking about office renovations and how much money Eric Greitens got and the mission continues. But that seems to be like the biggest stakes of the election. If Eric Greitens becomes governor, right to work is going to pass. If Coster becomes governor, we're basically at the status quo. So how is like your district and maybe St. Charles in general, which, you know, has a lot of conservatives and has a lot of union people and former union people going to react to a choice like that, basically? Well, I guess that they'll They'll go with whoever's supporting their side of it. Uh, I often wondered why all the work and money that was put into these primaries wasn't saved for the gubernatorial race. I, I, I often wondered about that because getting one person elected has got to be a lot easier than 20. So I, I just think people are – and again, it depends upon what the bill is that comes forward on right to work. If it's just for the public sector, it might be a different story. If it didn't have the clause in it that prevented renegotiation, extension, or anything of any existing contracts, it might be a different story. So it's always in the details. But I think that unions should be allowed to rise or fall on their own merits like any other organization. I wanted to get back to the comment you made about the, the, the billionaire from, from Joplin and trying to get your sense on you've got these two big money players in, in Republican primaries, David Humphreys, the businessman you were talking about, and Rex Singfield, who plays a lot in sort of the, the St. Louis area, but also in other races. And I'm wondering what your take is as to what they're both hoping to get. You know, they're both obviously report, supporting Republican ideals, but what what do you sense is that what are they trying to battle out over the other? Because sometimes they were throwing money into the opposite candidates in the same race. So is this just the, you know, I'm the bigger dog, or is this a, a, a philosophical thing going on here? Neither one of them have ever called me and disgusted. But <laughs> I, you know, I know that, that Mr. Sinkfeld has been active for a very long time. In and, and his politics. issues are pretty, pretty numerous. Right, I mean, they he's, are. In, in, I mean, he may support somebody because of taxes That's or city-county merger true. or anything else. I mean, David Humphreys, whether you like him or not, is pretty much a one-issue person. Right. That's right to work. But continue. No, and that's exactly right. And that's what I was going to say. Mr. Singfield has a lot of organizations. Uh, he is very organized. I mean, he, he's got a lot of uh, PACs that he, that he works with. And so he does. He goes from the 1% uh Earnings tax. Earnings tax, thank Mm -hmm. you. Here in St. Louis City to whatever happens to be the hot topic. His generally always seems to deal with fiscal or economic growth. I think Mr. Humphreys looks at right to work as a way to boost our economy. There's different studies. You can come down on different sides of that. But he is a one-issue person. Why they supported different people, that's anybody's guess. Well, as I'm sure that you know, there's it's very likely, and I wouldn't say very likely, but certainly possible there could be a, a campaign contributions amendment on the ballot this year. 
And one thing that I've been pointing out that no one else really seems to have gathered here is it only deals with state legislative and statewide candidates. It does not deal with municipal or county candidates, which I could see possibly being used as a way to get around that, i.e., let's say you term out of office and want to run for the state senate. You set up an account saying you're running for St. Charles City Council. You raise $2 million of unlimited money. Maybe you can transfer that over to the Senate. Maybe you just use it as independent expenditures to get your name out. I, I don't know what, what side you fall out on that issue, but I've asked that to a lot of legislators about whether that could be a potential problem with the Sauer Amendment. I'm just curious if you think that could be one of the consequences if it ends up passing. You know, we have term limits. So you've got such a short time to be known to the voters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's not really fair to the voters, but I also understand the other side of it, too. If, if somebody gets a very rich person who likes what they're saying and gives them $300,000, and my poor old little opponent over here, maybe they're the one that gets the 300000 can only raise 20000 Yeah, They cannot get their message out. Should there be limits? Yeah, but this is what's going to happen, in my opinion. It's going to be what it was before. There mm-hmm. are going to be so many packs set up, and it's going to the transparency is going to be gone. Yeah, and and that, you even see you see uh, Rex Sinkfield even doing that now with the unlimited contributions. Yeah. He has these different groups that, depending on the cause, he, yeah, he will donate that's to. that's it right there. That In his defense, not all of them aim for the same thing. They're looking true. to that achieve is true. different that is things. True. It's not just for one candidate. Right. Or, they are definitely broken down by and, causes. And I think that is probably going to be the more likely thing that happens because it doesn't cap, I think, third-party PACs either. I mentioned that scenario in case somebody wants to get more direct control over the money because when you have third-party PACs, I think that there are some restrictions about whether you can control them or not. And I've talked to even some Democrats who support this idea. They support the idea of camping contribution limits. They're really concerned about it not capping municipal and county elections. So I wanted to ask you one more question about just sort of the the dynamics of statewide politics and the Republican ticket. All all the statewide offices are up for grabs. Except for auditor. Except for auditor. You have a U.S. Senate race. All these things are going to affect legislative races. How do you think the Republicans... Are, are kind of constituted at this point in time um, to, to basically go to November at this point. I think that in St. Charles, the Republican Party has a strong, strong influence or presence there. They always have. I think this is one of the most interesting election cycles I've ever lived through. And, and my parents got me involved in politics when I was 10 years old. Uh, the first the first one I really remember is Kennedy and Johnson and my grandpa and my mom screaming at each other. And I, I've watched him ever since. We have two candidates for president. One used to be a Republican who's a Democrat. The Hillary other used, Clinton. Hillary Clinton was a golden uh, Goldwater girl. We've got Mr. Trump, who was a Democrat, who now is a Republican. We have Mr. Greitens, Democrat, now Republican. We have Mr. Co- Attorney General Coster, who was Democrat, now Republican. I'm not sure. Uh, say, that, say that again. He w- Attorney General Coster was a Republican and is now a Democrat. There you go. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's hard to keep it track. It is. I, I need a few more third-party people here. Um, but I think that it's a get-out-the-vote-on-both-sides. But I do think the Republican Party is gaining enthusiasm. I think that as the Democrat candidate for president starting to show some weaknesses here and there, people are 
past Labor Day. Again, they're starting to take a harder look at who their choices are. And I think that the enthusiasm is, is starting to come up. Um, for a long time, I was a little concerned about getting out the vote. But I think that tide is turning. Yeah, especially if, if, if Trump ends up winning Missouri by a large margin. I mean, obviously, in 2012, Mitt Romney won by a large margin. But there were extenuating circumstances that hurt the rest of the ticket, namely Todd Akin. <laughs> I, I don't think, I mean, it's September 15th. I could be wrong here. But having seen Eric Greitens and Roy Blunt, I don't think that they're going to make a Todd Akin-like catastrophic mistake that's going to affect the ticket at this point. I could be very wrong on that, and you can replay this and just laugh at me, <laughs> but both of them are very disciplined political figures, and I, I don't think that they are as loose with rhetoric as Aiken was, and that that may help if Trump ends up winning the state by a large margin. But we don't know what we don't know how that's going to shake out at this point. We don't. And, you know, there's a real feeling out there. I mean, look at incumbents around the country as we went through primaries. But now we're looking. It's not a primary. You don't get a choice within your own party. Now you get a choice between the two parties. And I think that I think the Republicans are going to have a very good year in Missouri. I truly do. Well, we want to thank you very much for coming on the show. You are as good as your Facebook posts are. <laughs> for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at? At our Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. And how would we find you on the social media that I've been bragging about for the last 40 minutes? Well, it's on Facebook. It's Kathy Conway. K-A-T-H-I-E, common spelling Conway. And on Twitter, I think I'm at Kathy Conway. So just uh, put me in there. My dad spelled my name a little differently, so you shouldn't have a hard time finding me. And to play us out, we will hear this incredible song from State Representative Kirk Matthews. It is called Goodbye, Jeremiah. The gentleman from Texas is not a lawyer. And old J.D. McGaw don't survey land And if Kelowna moves the debate To create his own state The speaker ought to let that motion stand We will say goodbye to Jeremiah Nixon we never really knew you anyway We won't have to call you governor Governor We'll just call you over it and Jay